for the first time, Tuesday is coming after Sunday. So for the first two years, Tuesday was always our first time going through the material, and then I would repeat it on Sunday nights. We're, we're, gonna, we're kind of doing an experiment this semester where Sunday, the study has moved to Sunday mornings, and then this has stayed the same. But that's even more fun because now I've already gone over this material and had my nerves, and now I'm just excited, and now I, just, I think it's fun. So I'm excited for that. Um, we will meet every week for eight weeks, 9 o'clock to about 10.45 is our realistic number. So that's what our babysitters are booked for. So you're allowed to linger, but you do have to get your kiddos by 10, 10.45. Um, so here's what I want to start with this morning. Most of you have been part of a women's Bible study before, I am guessing. Most of you have been part of our Bible studies before. You would probably agree with me that there's quite a bit of variety in what you get from a women's Bible study. So I want to lay out what our objectives are, what, what the expectations are here, and what our goal is. Um, so if you've heard this before, please smile and nod at me every now and then so that I don't just think I'm being too monotonous. So here's what I want to start with, a verse that you might already know, Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a good verse for us to gather around on week one because it reminds us that what we lead out with in our Bible studies is our mind. It does not mean that we leave our heart at home, but it means that we are going to put our mind at the front of the train and we are going to let our heart follow. The quote by Jen Wilkin that we say at the beginning of every study is the mind, no, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. I so wish we would have coined that and you know, marketed it as our, as our quote, that would be awesome. But, but we didn't, so, but we're still just gonna copy it over and over again. The heart cannot love what the mind cannot know. So we come here every week to Bible study and we lead with our minds. And then we believe that the path of transformation goes from our mind to our hearts and then out into our hands. We're not going to be conformed to this world. We're not going to take the Bible and make it fit into our lives. We're going to take our lives and make it fit into the Bible. So the first thing that you need to know as we're setting up our posture for Bible study is mind before heart. Secondly, we put God ahead of ourselves. Now, this seems obvious, I think, right? Like, of course, we're at Bible study. We're going to put God before ourselves. But when it really comes down to it, how often do we open up our Bibles to learn about ourselves? How often do we go and we open our Bible in the morning or in the evening, and really we're looking to hear about our life, our story, our circumstance, our crisis? You know, we come in and we're in a certain mood or we feel like we're insufficient in a certain way and we just want a quick pick-me-up from the Bible. And often we do get those, right? The Bible does often perk up our mood or stabilize our crazies. But the Bible is not primarily about us. We say that on repeat. The Bible is not primarily about us. We are not the main character. God is the main character of the Bible. Every story within the big story of the Bible is about God and his message to redeem and restore the people that he loves. So mind before heart 
God before us. And third, what we are going to do as we start another semester of Bible study is we are going to gear up for the long road. So another borrowed analogy, we are going to come to God's word like it is a savings account, not an ATM machine. So think about the last time you went to an ATM machine. You went and why did you go? You wanted to pull out what you needed for that day, right? You went to the ATM machine thinking short term. Okay, I'm just gonna get what I need to get the cash to get through today. What if instead of going to the Bible to just pull out what we need to put us in a better mood till lunchtime, what if instead we came and we thought about investing? We thought about investing our time and our mind and our energy into God's word for a long-term gain. We're studying a tough book in the Old Testament. There might be days where what you study is a list of names. Some of you who have been reading through this book have messaged me and said, really, Rebecca, this is what we're studying? What in the world? I can't even pronounce those names, or I'm so bored, or I skipped that, just to be honest, right? There are going to be days where that is what we're called to study as we go through and exegetically study the book of Nehemiah. That might not make us feel prettier for that day, right? That might not make us feel immediate peace that all of our troubles are going to go away. But if we think of the Bible as a savings account and our Bible study as a savings account, then we are thinking long term. So if we try to get the truths of this, this story in the Bible to go deep, and we invest them deep and hide them in our heart, maybe two, four, six years down the road, something's going to happen in our life, and we're going to be able to draw from that savings account. There will be something that we learned years before, possibly even in that list of names, that we need so that we can grow in Christ-likeness down the road. So those are our three expectations. Those are the three ways that we build our posture as we approach God's word. What that doesn't mean, like I've said, it doesn't mean that Nehemiah is void of everyday application because it's not. It is so rich for everyday application. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to cry when I teach it. You know I probably will. And you know that it doesn't mean that we won't learn about ourselves. We will. But we're going to learn about ourselves in the right order after we've learned about God. So the goal, it's, it's the beginning of the year. Some of you guys still have the energy of, of January and you want your goal. Here's our goal for women's ministry, for women's Bible study, is that we might know the God of the Bible and therefore worship him. Simply put, that is what we are setting our gaze on as we start study, that we may know God and that we might worship him and that we might know him in an intimate way, not just in a head knowledge, not, not just knowing about him, not just preparing for our next game of Bible trivia. If you do want to play that, please let me know. I would love to take you up on that, right? This isn't that we may know about him, but that we may know him and therefore worship him. So those are what you can expect from us, from whoever is teaching up here, whoever is in leadership. What I would love to be able to expect of you guys, and again, you're probably already on board for this, is do your homework, do your prep work, do the workbook, do the reading, okay? That will allow you to get so much more out of our Tuesday time as if you did your homework. I will not kick you out this week if you didn't do it. <laughs> 
Number two is connected to that. Don't let me or whoever is up here think for you, right? Sometimes that is just a, the, the easy way out is that we just come and we just want whoever is up front to just give us all the answers. Don't let me think for you. I am 32. I have never been to seminary. I do not know all the answers. I am a fellow studier with you. I maybe just get a little bit more time during my week to study, and I start in Nehemiah before you. Otherwise, I am just on my knees every day begging to know the truth within the story of Nehemiah. So, uh, and number three, push yourself to be honest and vulnerable when you come to Bible study. There are these, uh, these valleys on either side of women's ministry where we come and we either want to make everyone think that we've got it all together or we come in and we are just such a hot mess that we can't even like pull ourselves together. We want to try and find this healthy place in the middle where we come and we realize like, I'm just, I'm not going to waste time of trying to make everyone here think that I, that I've got it together, that I don't have bad habits, that I didn't have a temper this morning, that I don't have a sin that I just can't seem to break, right? We're going to come in and we are going to be vulnerable and we are going to admit that we are saints who still struggle with sin and we're going to leave our masks at the door. So we come in messy and we, we find that we can learn more and we can learn more quickly when we're in that posture, and we find that we will be changed by God's word, but we're not changed in a way that makes us less needy for God. Okay, so those are my hopes for you guys and for myself. A couple little details about this study specifically. Um, something I found, so that we are in our, we've had two years of women's ministry where we have done consistent Bible studies. And one thing that I have learned among the many is that I cannot provide a Bible study that everybody loves. You know, I look at the last two years and I can probably make a good guess of what overall were the most effective or the most helpful, but I can't find one that you all love. And that's not my goal, right? So I knew about midfall that we, that Nehemiah was what I wanted us to study. And I prayed about it and I thought I was excited about it. So I found this study. It's written by uh, Kathleen Nielsen, who for a long time was the women's uh, ministry director, essentially, of the Gospel Coalition. So I knew it was going to be trustworthy. I knew it was going to be legit stuff. Um, every other study that I found online on Nehemiah, the, the description said something like, Nehemiah had a heart for the hurting. Let's have a heart for the hurting. And I would cringe, not because we're not supposed to have a heart for the hurting, but that is a small lesson within Nehemiah. Or I'd find another study, and like the little paragraph on Amazon was just like, let's be Nehemiah. And I was like, no, like that's not the point of the study. So that is why I chose this study. Um, you have maybe already gotten it started, and, or maybe not. It's a little different. I would say the number of pages per week is more than uh, the two Jen Wilkins studies that we've done, definitely more than our study last semester. Uh, it starts with a commentary, which, is a, which we definitely haven't had before. It also has videos. We are not going to use the videos. It's not like a video-driven series. It's more like there's these short videos every now and then that kind of add to it. Um, that is just a practical nightmare to try and fit that in when we don't have our own space. You know, we can make it work here on Tuesday studies because we have a TV in there, um, but it, it doesn't really work for Sunday. 
So what I just decided to do, and I'm sorry if this makes some of you feel like this is super disorganized, we're not gonna do the little videos. They're only like 12 to 15 minutes. Um, I will watch them, I will learn from them, and put them put into our teaching what I think we need to focus on. It's good stuff, it's people that know way more than I do. Uh, but I just don't think it's what we need um, this semester. We will be in a building uh, next fall. Our Bible study will, will be all the more blessed, I think, because we'll be in our home and it'll be good stuff. So I'm sorry if, that, if that's tough for you guys, but I, I want you guys to look at this. I want you guys to give it a couple weeks. The questions are good. They're hard. They're de she doesn't think for you. Um, however, what I want to do is give you guys an option. If you give this a couple weeks and you're not loving it, uh, it's just not your style, then what we have done is we have made a, a pretty simple reading and study schedule. And you guys can all have one of these even if you started on the book. Um, and it gives you the schedule for essentially two chapters of Nehemiah a week. And then what I've done is I've given you some prompts to journal your way through Nehemiah uh, or to take notes your way, all the way through. This, this might be easier for some of you or some of you might see like, oh, that's a challenge and I'm ready for it. I want to do that. I want to be that independent in my study. So here's just the real quick. Here's what, I, what we put on here. I want you to read through those two chapters several times through the week. If you can do it five times, that's great. If you can do it two times and then try and listen to it on your Bible app on your way to work or something, do that. But try and read through the two chapters repetitively. Secondly, write out an outline of what you read. Okay, that's a way to organize your thoughts. And then you're just going to go through the questions that we talk about every semester. Number one, comprehension. What does the text say? So that's where you might write out some notes of, okay, so what are the pronouns that are, I see? What are repeated words or phrases? Uh, who, what characters presented for the first time this week? Um, things like that. What does the text say? Observations. Secondly, what is the text you're going to interpret it. What does it mean? What does the text mean? And so you'll write some notes on that. And then after you've done that, you've done the due process, then you get to say application. How am I going to be different because of these two chapters in Nehemiah? How will my life look differently? And then the final question, what did I learn about God from this text? And on some of the weeks, you might write number four, I don't know. Right? There might be some of those weeks that you just you don't know exactly what it is. And hopefully I will be able to come and color in some of that because I have gotten additional support from other people. Um, but this is our second option. Okay, So um, go ahead and take one of these if you want, if that interests you. Um, and you know, somebody texted me after Sunday, a good organized rule follower, and she was like, but Rebecca, there's questions off of the videos. What am I supposed to do? She was so irritated with me. I'm okay with that now, but I was like, it's okay, you can do it. If, if you are, you've got the text in front of you, there might be some questions that look like it's based on the video. If you would like to skip it, you can skip it, but give it a try, and the lecture each week should color that in, okay? So those, those are our options. Um, I'm definitely up for um, helping you out if you're trying to make a decision on what you want to do, but what I'm really up for is bribing you in case you're wondering what you should do. We got Carly Colin to make us a couple of these homemade journals. She brought these to our women's event, the Christmas event, and she sold out of them so quickly. So I was like, oh, 
that and Kendra's earrings just went really fast. And so I asked her to make one for each Bible study, and we're going to give this away, especially if you're thinking about doing the journaling through Nehemiah. Um, this is a, these are really cool. I really like these. So let's do this. If you are even thinking about doing the journaling, or if you're already a journaler, raise your hand. This is how you're entering in. If you journal at all, if you take notes, anyone thinking about doing this? Okay. Okay. About half of us. Um, of those people, um, if, let's see, of, keep your hands up. Let's see whose birthday is the closest. Anyone have a birthday in February or January? February or January? Debbie, when was your? Okay, who can beat March 16th? March 15th? March 3rd. Okay, Rachel gets it. Enjoy. Isn't that pretty? Okay. So that is kind of the, the business side. That is our intro. That's the, the plan that you guys need to know. So now let's jump into Nehemiah. You can open up to Nehemiah 1 if, if you want to or open up your app. We are just looking at the first three verses this morning. Okay. So I think that stories are an incredibly powerful way to learn lessons. I love storytelling. I think overall, a story is a better way to learn something rather than bullet points, right? There is a reason why I didn't just give you guys a 16-page front and back papers of bullet points of what Nehemiah is all about, right? We get to learn from the story, the narrative of Nehemiah. I have loved stories since I was a kid. So I was the second of four kids. It was three girls and then my brother came many years later. So most of my childhood, I remember it just being the three of us. And all three of us shared a room and we shared one of those aluminum bunk beds. You guys remember when they were aluminum and it was bright red and um, two of us were on the bottom. I was just like, you know, we walked uphill both ways, then the snow, whatever, you know. But on some nights, and there was no rhyme or reason to it. My dad would come into our bedroom and he would bring with him the honey bear from our, from our pantry. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The honey that you get in the little bear. And when he brought in this little bear, we knew that it wasn't going to be just a quick prayer and kiss goodnight. He was going to tell us a story. Because that little honey bear, his name was Sri Lanka. Now, at my point in education, I had no idea that Sri Lanka was a place, and I have no idea why my dad <laughs> named him that, but this little bear was named Sri Lanka, and we would all have to, you know, gather up on our bunk beds and sit very still, and my dad would calm us, and he would say, a long time ago, in the jungles of northern India, there lived a young honey bear by the name of Sri Lanka, and he would begin to tell a story. And these stories about this young honey bear and all his jungle friends was always greatly infused with, with biblical virtues and characters and, and stories. And there was metaphors, and I'm sure so many of them went over our head. But he would somehow tie it into maybe some bad behavior he had seen in us that day, or maybe good behavior, <laughs> or you know, maybe it was something he was learning in that, in that time and, and we just didn't know about it. But he would tell us these stories 
so much of what I learned about God was actually from within those bedtime stories about a little honey bear. There were other nights that my dad would uh, teach us through stories in a very different way. So these nights would always catch us by surprise. So I want you to picture me first, uh, some poofy, bright orange hair, skinny as a rail, and I always slept in this Wonder Woman nightie. Okay, that was before Wonder Woman was trendy. I was Wonder Woman. And every now and then my dad would come in and he would have, I, I don't know if this happened several times, but in my mind I remember several times, he had taken either my mom's red lipstick or face paint and made a really big exaggerated uh, smile and he would come in with an evil laugh and he would go Batman and instantly we all had to spring into a character because he was going to wrestle us he was going to tackle us right before bed and lots of times he would have taken kitchen utensils and like put them in his pockets and he would whip out like the whisk and say like I'm gonna scramble your hair I'm gonna flip you like a pancake and I of course had to be the hero so I was Batman and I always had to save my older sister who was always the damsel in distress <laughs> and my dad would pull us into these stories and most of that one was just silly but it was teaching us about good versus evil and calling us into action and those were some of my favorite memories as a young girl and so here we are many years later and we are about to watch a story unfold. It is a story about Nehemiah, and it is a story about God's people. The stage is set to display God's character through a covenant relationship between him and the people that he loves. God's character is going to be on display as he reveals himself as the author of the big story and how he works on behalf of of his people's good and his glory. But if we were to just jump into Nehemiah 1 today, if we were just to turn to you know, the very middle of our Bible, page 503 in my Bible, and pick up in chapter 1, verse 1, we might miss a lot of what's going on in Nehemiah, right? I mean, can you imagine in high school if you would have walked into cal calculus and just opened up in the middle of your book? You would have been lost, right? Well, we need to study the Bible in similar... I didn't take calculus. You guys are all mumbling. I know many of you did, but I can imagine. <laughs> we, we would miss out on so much of what we need to know if we only started in, Gen in Nehemiah chapter 1. So I want to take you guys back and do a quick condensed version of some other smaller stories within a bigger story. Thousands of years before Jesus' birth, many years before Nehemiah's birth, is actually when Nehemiah's story begins. In Genesis chapter 12, we read about a man named Abraham, and he receives a promise from God. Listen as I read the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 4, God again is talking to this one man, Abraham, talking about a promise. And he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Well, this promise comes true for Abraham. You guys know that, right? God gives him a son of promise. And in Genesis chapter 26, we get to hear again God's promise coming true to his people. My hands are a little bit cold, so I'm turning these pages so slowly. Genesis 26, 3 through 4. Listen as God now speaks to Isaac. He says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well, God's promise becomes a reality to Abraham's family. As the descendants of Abraham grew greatly, they settled in the promised land. They settled in Canaan. However, years later, a famine strikes Canaan. And God preserves his people. God keeps his promise to his people by moving them to Egypt, right? However, God's promise so became so true to them, their numbers became so great that it threatened Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians. And so he enslaves his people. He enslaves them. The people are, are made captives, and they don't hear from God for hundreds of years. Right? God is silent. But then one man receives a promise from God again. Exodus 3, starting in verse 7. Listen as God speaks to Moses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Just a couple chapters later, again, God comes to Moses Starting in chapter 6, verse 7, he'll say, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So God's people are delivered from Egypt, and they make their way out in the desert, and they're about to enter the promised land, this land that's been promised all the way back to Abraham. But you know the sad story. They lack the faith, right? Ten of the twelve spies lack the faith to go and to take the promised land that God had already given them. And so God punishes them by making them wander in the desert for 40 years. Well, eventually, God's people, a new generation of God's people, they enter into that land of promise. They are victorious over their enemies, and the city of Jerusalem is settled and it becomes prosperous. And maybe you know the next chapter of this story. The next chunk of the Bible stories, the people are led by judges. Judges, good and bad, 
as the people's love for God vacillates back and forth. Then it becomes a season of kings. God's people ask for a king. They look around, they say, all the other nations have kings. We want a king. Not understanding that God was their king. But God gives them what they ask for. So then it, Saul becomes the king of Israel. And then David. And then Solomon. Solomon, who builds the temple, and the people enjoy a season of prosperity. But when we read Nehemiah chapter 1, the promised land of God is desolate, right? Jerusalem, the city of God, is vacated. There's only a small number of Jews living in that city. So picture this, where walls once stood, there is rubble, debris, debris, wreckage. The walls that once signified strength and security, they're destroyed. So what happened? Where are the promises of God? I mean, we just marched through much of the Old Testament looking at these promises. Did the covenant expire? Did we read something incorrectly? Where are God's people? And maybe even a better question, where is God? I'm going to read the first three verses of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. When you open your Bible, you will notice that Nehemiah is right there in the middle, right, of your pages. But what we need to understand as we start to study this is that chronologically, the book of Nehemiah is actually in the closing scenes of your Old Testament to help you get your bearings. Okay, this is one of the last stories that we get to hear about before that long period of silence before the New Testament. The first scene opens in Susa the capital of the Persian Empire. It says that it's in the ninth month of the Jewish calendar, which is the month of Chislev, and King Artaxerxes is in his 20th year of reign. Where are God's people? Well, they are dispersed all across the Persian Empire. They are slaves, they are captives, and they have been for 70 years. And what we read is that one of Nehemiah's brothers has brought him some very bad news from Jerusalem. His brother tells him that Jerusalem is in bad shape and that the remnant, so the few people that are left, they are in trouble and they are in shame. And he tells him that physically the walls and the gates are burned and broken down. Well, in this next week of study, you're going to see that Nehemiah is just wrecked from this report. He seems shocked. He is destroyed. He is just devastated at this report. And so it begs the question, why is Nehemiah so upset about this? I think there's a lot of answers, but what we need to see right now, it's not that Nehemiah didn't know what had happened 70 years earlier. 
So 70 years before the opening scene of Nehemiah, what happens is that God's people are carried off by the Babylonians. Okay, Jerusalem is laid siege, and they are carried off as captives to, a, to a, the land of Babylon. Why did that happen? Well, maybe you guys know that part of the story. God's people weren't putting him first, right? They were compromising. They were breaking his laws. They weren't staying faithful to him. And so God, he sent the prophets to give them messages of warning, beckoning them to return, to come back, to repent, to confess, to walk as God has told you to walk. And if not, he said, I will bring discipline. I will bring it from the neighboring countries and they will enslave you. I mean, Jeremiah told them exactly what was going to happen. And God's people did not listen. They did not turn back. Well, of course, God is going to be faithful to his word. And so Jerusalem was laid siege. They were made captive and carried off to Babylon. Well, some years later, through God's sovereignty, the Persian Empire takes over and a new king is in charge. And we'll look at this several times throughout the semester, but God moves in the heart of this non-believing king and he lets some of God's people return to Jerusalem and start the work of building. But that man, those men, it's not Nehemiah. We need to understand that two men, two strong God-fearing leaders have tried to go back and do what we're going to see Nehemiah do. Those men's names are Zerubbabel, who came from the line of David, and Ezra, a priest. Those men went back, I think like about 13 years before <laughs> Nehemiah. They went back with the same mission, a similar mission as Nehemiah. We will go and we will rebuild what has been broken down. We will re rebuild the temple. We will rebuild God's people. We will rebuild the city. Why is Nehemiah so upset at this report from his brothers? because he is finding out that that first mission failed. Ezra and Zerubbabel, their missions did not come to fruition. The opposition was too great. And their work, their goals never came to fruition. That is why we see that this is a bad day for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is tasting defeat. As this story unfolds, we are going to see that Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the wall for God's city. We're going to see that he restores a home and a place of worship for God's people. So you get what this story is about, right? I mean, you, you see that Nehemiah is about to take on the biggest DIY project ever in all of history. Nehemiah is about to do a huge reno. We're not saying that he's just going to put shiplap up in the temple or he's going to open up the floor plan. He is coming in and he is doing a total renovation. Nehemiah is the chip gains of 500 BC. So why are we studying this? Of all the books of the Bible that we could study, why why do I think that God has brought us to the book of Nehemiah? Disclaimer, it is not because we are building a church building. Although there are going to be sweet moments of application for us in this season as we build our physical church building. 
But why study this? What, what can we expect to learn from here? Well, this story is about so many things that we all need to hear. Uh, this story is about compassion, leadership, hard work, and purpose. Within these 13 chapters, you guys are going to be stirred to care about the things of God. You are going to uh, allow the words of God are going to come in and they're going to be a catalyst for you, causing you to say, how can I live on mission? How can I get on that wall, so to speak? Perhaps we as a group of, men, of women will be inspired to act on behalf of the poor and the needy and the broken down. As we see strong leadership in Nehemiah, maybe we will all become better leaders by April. Going back to my childhood love of stories, I bet that I would have asked my dad if I could have played Nehemiah. Because in so many ways, we will see him as a hero. We're going to see strong leadership in him. We'll see his great faith, his courage, his wisdom. Guys, we will learn so much about prayer by looking at Nehemiah's prayer life. From his example, we will learn about working hard for the things of God, and we're going to learn about expecting redemption and restoration from God. There will be many weeks that we are going to read about opposition, lessons that we need to learn. We're going to respond to how we should face suffering in our own lives. And as we see the people's examples, we will have days where we feel inspired by their resiliency, by their unity. The week that the wall is finished, we are going to celebrate and we will feel pumped. That's a pretty good list of reasons to study the book of Nehemiah. And the story, it's not about less than any of those topics, but it is about much more than those topics. This is about much more than a moral leader that we should all emulate. It's much more than a look at teamwork or your life's purpose. Nehemiah is not a self-help manual. It is much more than that. See, the way I, I think that we sometimes do this is picture, can I have your phone? So sometimes when we go into God's word, and especially if it's a narrative and it's got a character in it, we think about taking a selfie with Nehemiah, right? So just this really close look of, oh, here's me and Nehemiah, and look, I'm going to get on that wall and do whatever God's called me to do, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But what if instead we switched it to panoramic and we zoomed out to get the much bigger view of God's story? What if we actually set our tra trajectory to look way beyond just the story of Nehemiah? What would we learn then? What would we learn about God if we took that approach? We're going to love that this is a story. There are so many rising tensions and dramatic conflicts, but the story is a story within a story. Okay? This fits into something called the redemptive narrative of the Bible. That is the thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation that, re that displays God as the redeemer and the restorer of all things, that displays God as the keeper of his covenant promises. So this story is about God rebuilding his people. 
It's about him restoring his people from the estranged captive position that their sin had put them in. Can I say that again? This is a story about God restoring his people from the estranged captive position that their rebellion had put them in. It is about God's city. It is about a building, but ultimately what God is rebuilding in this story is intimacy with his people. Why study Nehemiah? Because if we study hard with our minds going ahead of our hearts, as we do that, what we are going to see is it's about more than Jerusalem. We will see that maybe it's actually about the future city of God. The future city that someday all of his children get to come home to. That future city of God where there will be no need for a son because the radiance of God's presence will be light enough. That future city of God that we will come home to where no eye will drop a tear and no heart will hurt. If we study Nehemiah hard, if we stick with us, perhaps that we will see it's not really about Nehemiah's wall, keeping the Israelites safe, but perhaps we will see that Nehemiah's wall is our salvation. And that when our salvation is built upon God's covenant promises, we are kept safe from sin. Once we catch that view of the book of Nehemiah, we can start to ask our application questions. We can ask questions like, what ruin in your life needs to be restored? What sin or rebellion in your life or in someone's, someone close to you has created a mess? and left you in somewhat of a desolate place? And what area of life do you, ladies, need to get on the wall and start working out your salvation? Nehemiah's story is about ruin being transformed into renewal, of God quite literally making beauty from ashes. Nehemiah's story does tell our story. It tells us about God's people coming home, of God's children tasting the sweet grace of God's promises. So let's hear this invitation to ask these questions, to let the, the mirror of God's word reflect back into our life. In my last month of studying this, what has come to the surface is that I have some areas of my life that are in chaos, and I want to see God bring order to those, just as he did at creation, taking the chaos of nothing and bringing it into order. And as he did in the Garden of Eden, our God is a God who takes chaos and bring it to order. Nehemiah watched that happen 
and I want to see that happen in my life. I have some relationships in my life right now that are brittle, that are fragile, much like the wall of Jerusalem was. And I want to anticipate eagerly that God will rebuild those things through confession, through prayer, and through my faith. What is it for you? What invitation do you need to hear as we begin this study? What in your life is ruined and needs the God of renewal? See, this is a story about God. I've said it how many times now. This book reveals to us God as the author of the big story, one that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. This book is going to teach us that God is about his covenant, about his children, and about his glory in all the earth. The story is not so much about Nehemiah, but as we will see in coming weeks, this is a story about a much better Nehemiah. I said at the beginning that our goal in Bible study is to know God and to worship him. It's more than knowing about him, but it's knowing him like how a wife knows a husband or how a sheep knows his shepherd. But before we begin this goal of, of knowing God, we must fully realize that the only way that that is possible is because he first has known us. This knowing is initiated by God. J.I. Packer says it this way, they know him by faith because he first singled them out by grace. That is our position as we begin this study and every study following. Let's pray. <laughs> 